time to play ball. Welcome to the podcast with no limits. Whether it be sports, current events, or random thoughts, this is the place to step in and stay a while. Your host is a proud alumnus of Rio Hondo Prep, a former minor league baseball umpire, and a man with strong opinions. Welcome to the Get Home Safe podcast and your host, Matt Persima. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Get Home Safe. Happy Friday to everyone. Hope, hopefully everyone's week has been going uh, well, and here we are headed into another weekend, but not before. We have a great podcast for you here on Friday mornings, all day Friday, and uh, yeah, it'll be up forever, right? So uh, here we are on another Friday, and Fridays mean um, a, a long-form conversation with somebody, usually a lot of uh, people from my alma mater, Real Hondo Prep, because they've gone into and done so many great things, uh, you know, all throughout the world and everything. But I also have on here a lot of different uh, types of sports officials because officiating was something that was a very big part uh, of my life. And, and every time I think of Fridays, I specifically think of uh, Friday Night Lights and work in high school football. And I had the opportunity to work high school football for many years, uh, 10, 11 years with uh, the Foothill Citrus Football Officials Association. Got my, my polo on here uh, with, with their logo on it. And uh, my experiences there were just, uh, I mean, I, you can't put a, a price on the memories I made and the relationships I made. Uh, we're just a bunch of great people there. And my first really step into officiating well before I got involved in uh, professional baseball, college baseball, I was a high school football official and, you know, high school basketball and, and baseball also, but high school football is where I really uh, cut my teeth. Is that the, is that the way the phrase they say? Uh, and, and I just, I loved it from the very beginning. And I was told basically, you got to get out, you got to watch guys work. You got to uh, ask questions. You got to learn. It's, it's very much on you. And uh, I did that the first few years in, in Foothill Citrus, and I haven't done it in a while, but I met some amazing people, and I haven't had an official uh, on the podcast in uh, quite some time, so I thought we'd today bring on somebody that is not only uh, a, or was, I should say, a high school football official, also worked some college ball, if I'm not mistaken, um, but he was also uh, in the Los Angeles Police Department for many, many years, worked as a detective, I believe in homicide. I'll let him uh, fill us in on all those details. But today we're going to be joined by Mr. Paul Mize. He's been uh, long retired from both the LAPD and his uh, officiating days. But right as I was joining Foothill Citrus is when Mr. Mize was kind of at the end of his officiating days. And so I think it was year two or three of my time there where where Paul walked away and, uh, and, and enjoyed retirement. But uh, I had a brief interaction with him then. I have stayed in touch a little bit with him uh, since then. And he's one of many guys who've gone through Foothill Citrus that uh, I, I truly do cherish the, uh, the, the brief moments I had to work with them, learn about them, uh, learn from them. So uh, Paul Mize is our guest today. And I've had a few different Foothill Citrus football officials on this podcast uh, throughout the, the past two years. I've had Tracy McFate, Luther Wilson, Joe Bernanski, Scott Root, uh, Danny Cortez, so many great guys that I have had the privilege to work with Bob lamb. I mean, I can't say enough about these guys. And so I hope you guys enjoy today's episode of Mr. Paul Mize, because we're not just going to talk officiating. We'll also get into a little bit of, uh, maybe how crazy the world has been the past few years and also his, uh, his experiences in, uh, in, in law enforcement, working for the LAPD, especially, uh, being a detective, 
uh, I'm sure he will have a, a story or two for us. So I will not waste any more of everyone's time. Let's get to our, our guest today, our main event. It is my privilege today to be joined by Mr. Paul Mize. Okay, my guest today is uh, someone I've wanted to chat with for quite some time. He has a uh, had a great career in law enforcement, spent 35 years with the Los Angeles Police Department, 28 of those years as a detective. He was also a football official in the Foothill Citrus Foot, Foothill Citrus Football Officials Association. That's where we met. Uh, a lot of great things to talk about. Can't wait to talk to Mr. Paul Mize. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Paul, I started Foothill Citrus back in 07, and you were one of the veteran officials there. Um, I was just starting out as you were kind of finishing up, I think you said in 09 or, or 2010. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say that so many of the, the people uh, and the faces, uh, just the, I don't know, I, 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 you and I would have never probably met had it not been for football officiating. And there's a lot of people I could say that about. True. Uh, you know, doing what I did, uh, you, you value your friendships and uh, your relationships with uh, all the cops that I grew up with that mentored me and, uh, and guys that uh, worked under me uh, uh, at various uh, jobs that I had. And uh, you get into football, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, you, you develop your friendships and, uh, and you know those guys that, uh, that really take an interest in you and, and try to help you. In my case, it was uh, Al Corey. Al Corey was, uh, was a guy. Now, it's funny, uh, it just dawned on me, Al Corey. My goodness, I worked in a radio car at Newton Street Station, downtown LA. Uh, this would be just before the Watts riot in 1965. That'll take us back a bit. But uh, with Al Corey's dad, <laughs> his, dad his father was an LA police officer. And uh, so I, wor I worked with him for a couple of months and uh, had no clue about Al whatsoever. And, uh, but I was taking uh, classes at uh, uh, trying to get my uh, AA degree at Mount Sac. And there was a guy sitting there next to me and, uh, and we just chit chatted during breaks. I never ever said to anybody college that I was a police officer. I mean, this was during the Vietnam War and, uh, and trust me, anybody in law enforcement was, was not very popular among those, those people. So Al had casually mentioned to me about his father being an LA police officer. And I go, ding, ding, ding. Uh, I said, uh, you know, <laughs> I mentioned to him, I, I can't think of his father's name, I go, Don. I said, uh, I knew a Don Corey. And he said, that was probably my dad. And so we had just, so we, we had this friendship that, uh, that went on through our college, Cal State LA and all that stuff. And uh, we just kind of kept in touch. He caught me as my kids grew, got older, they got involved in junior All-American football. And uh, so here's where I got acquainted with, uh, with football officiating. I was uh, coaching a, a team at Cortez Park in West Covina that my boys played on. And the referee uh, for our game uh, was Mr. Al Corey. And uh, so we got to going on that. And he, uh, as my kids evolved and were going into high school, I realized I, I didn't want to go around and coach somebody else's kids and stuff. So I said, hey, 
time for me to get out of this. And he offered me, uh, why don't you come and go with me uh, next Tuesday night or Monday night, whatever it was when the meetings were. And uh, we met at, uh, at Mount Sac then. And uh, so that's where, that's how I got into football officiating. I went out there to the meeting and next thing you know, I'm paying my dues and signing up. <laughs> so many guys have that kind of story where they, they were involved in coaching or something and wanted to kind of stay involved and officiating kind of, you know, made sense. And we all thought before we got into it, Oh, I can do that. That's easy. That's not hard at all. I, I, I officiate from my couch every, every weekend and I yell at refs. So how hard could it be? What, what was your first experiences in, in trans transitioning to officiating? But it, uh, you know, when you're doing the, the sideline stuff and, and, and I played, I played in high school and, uh, and in college and stuff. And so I understood a lot about the game and probably more so than, uh, than a lot of people. But uh, my philosophy evolved over the years about uh, people involved in coaching was that uh, most coaches know enough about football officiating to be dangerous. Other than that, they know shit about it. They don't, they don't understand the philosophy of it. They, <laughs> They, they think we're all out there trying to decide the game, you know, <laughs> and uh, I, I had a coach uh, get on my case and ask me, say, how the hell can you make that call? Uh, I said, well, I couldn't have made it last week. Why couldn't you have made it last week and you make it this week? Why wouldn't wear my glasses? You know, and <laughs> he, he just flamed out. <laughs> Oh my goodness. That is, that is good stuff. I, I, I will say, which we'll, we'll eventually get to, I, I've seen a lot of guys who are in law enforcement uh, go into officiating and really it was very seamless. I always felt like the guys who, who were, had experience in law enforcement, they were, it was just second nature to them on the field because of having a presence and taking control and things like that. And instead of dealing with the, uh, you know, lawlessness or whatever you're dealing with, uh, with penalties and enforcement on a, on a, on a football field. It is, it is kind of a, I never had a problem with, uh, you know, like you say, uh, we've all worked with officials and, and games, uh, no matter what sport you're doing. And they're like empty suits out there. I mean, uh, you wonder, is anybody working that sideline over there? You know, it, it, what the hell's going on? And, uh, but I never had a problem uh, uh, stepping up and uh, and having my say, even with the, you know, with veteran referees. You know, when you get into college football, a lot of these uh, a lot of these guys don't like to be challenged, and so when uh, I kind of fought, well, I did follow at Al Corey's uh, footsteps. Uh, he had told me if you want to work college football, and I started late. I was thirty five or thirty six years old, and uh, it. So I knew I was never going to, even if I'd had the skill, I was never going to go to division one football, but never going to happen too old. And, uh, but sometimes you just have to, uh, you know, speak up and, uh, and let the, uh, the referees know that this is not the right way to go. I was an umpire. I became an umpire and I, umpires probably know more about the rules than the referees themselves. That's why they always want you standing there when they make the make a, a call. And uh, so you can go, uh, 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 excuse me, would you like to repeat that, Mr. Referee? <laughs> and, uh, 
Well, one of my first games, well, I should say it was my second year and I had a pretty good first year, got a couple of varsity games, you know, working the flanks. And I remember Tracy, when one of those uh, post game gatherings, of course, said, well, how do you feel about back judge next year? And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, well, sure. Why not? And uh, I wasn't a, a lot slimmer then, but I was a little slimmer then. And, and I remember my very first back judge game was uh, with you. You were the white hat. It was at Wilson high school. And I just wanted to not screw up because it was a new yeah. position I was learning. And then I think after the game, you know, as you weren't, you weren't much for uh, you know, for, for positive feedback, you'll say, but I think you gave me a slap on the back and said, Hey, good job. Like that was about as much at, at, for me, I was ecstatic, like, and I'd still screwed up plenty in that game, but I'll never forget that first experience out there. Uh, that was the first time I had worked with you also. I, I was, uh, you know, like I say, uh, you know, when I started, and, and I started in 1975, the, uh, you didn't get varsity games. Uh, <laughs> we, we were in four-man mechanics at varsity and three-man in the afternoon and that, that sort of thing. And uh, so there wasn't, uh, you think about, well, we just didn't need that many officials. And there was like 130 guys, 125, 130 guys. And so your chances of getting the varsity game were Slimsky and Nunsky. And so we would, uh, uh, I would volunteer to work games because I didn't get any afternoon games either. And so I'd get a hold of a referee at, uh, at meeting and I'd say, hey, do you mind having a fourth guy? Well, who the hell wouldn't like to have a little more help on Friday when he's going to go to a varsity game when the game is over? And uh, so I sort of made my game or my name the first couple of years by volunteering and working games for free. Uh, it was never was never about the money for me whatsoever. They could have, I'd have paid them to do it. I had so much fun. It was sort of, it was sort of like when I was a young, young cop on the, uh, working a radio car. Some nights it was so much fun. Uh, I, we'd look at one another at midnight or something and say, what do you mean we got to go home? We're having too much fun. And <laughs> It was, it was a lot like that with football for me. I, uh, I enjoyed it. And then, uh, the, uh, you know, we, you had to go and, and drink beer and visit with people after. And none of us ever wanted to do that, you know, drink beer and, and uh, you know, and, Twisted and our lie to each other about how good we were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was no one more critical on uh, a Friday night. Uh, on officials than other officials afterwards and hearing the stories yeah. and like, you did what you let, what <laughs> happened in your game? Are you out of your mind? You over went around for that. Like that's what, that's what made it. I mean, some guys, Hey, they work for free, like you're saying, because they were spending their whole game check uh, paying taxes. We'll say for those uh, guys that, that messed up, you know? True. True. <laughs> I paid, I paid more than a few shares of taxes myself. <laughs> I did a, I had uh, I was always kind of uh, smug, and it's probably a good word about never having an inadvertent whistle in a game. And uh, I was working a game up at uh, Citrus, and I I think it was Claremont and Glendora, and uh, they're coming down to the uh, be the the west end zone, and uh, I was the umpire. Bernanski was the referee. And I see this guy get hit right, right in the hole. Uh, he's got the ball, and down he goes. And so I step up, and uh, I never had my whistle in my mouth. I always used a finger whistle, 
And, uh, and I would tell everybody, use a finger whistle, you'll never have an inadvertent whistle. And so I do it, I blow the plate dead and I look over at Joe and Joe's just standing frozen in his spot. And he takes his head and kind of flops it. If you can see me, he went like this, just kind of flopped his head and looked at me. And then I see the ball bouncing back behind. behind and of course it's recovered by the defense. <laughs> and Joe says, can you do me a favor and and please go explain to the Claremont coach why, <laughs> why he's not going to get the football. <laughs> For those non-officials out there, an inadvertent whistle is, you know, one of the worst things that can happen on a football field. It's blowing the whistle too early when someone fumbles or whatever the case is. And the only thing you can really do with an inadvertent whistle is a do-over. So even though the defense jumped on the fumble, we had a whistle. Uh, we have to just do the play over. So Mr. Mize here had to walk over to the coach and tell him, Hey, I got bad news and bad news. <laughs> you know, it was funny because the coach, the coach was, was a guy who didn't, he didn't have much patience anyway. And so all I did was solidify it for him that we were a bunch of clowns. And, uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I must've ate, uh, many pounds of bullshit after that for for weeks <laughs> you know it, it came in they wanted to know what is it uh well one of the referees I, I don't remember who it was uh wanted to know if if I brought a whistle to the game and I said yeah and he said let me see it and uh, he told me he told me he said I'll hang on to this and when we need you to blow the whistle I'll give it to you <laughs> you can't get upset the only thing you can do is laugh it off and hey, I, I deserve all this, all this grief because it's like the unpardonable sin. <laughs> yeah. Blow that you, you need thick skin to be an official, but you, again, you need the, the thick skin to, to work with uh, your colleagues. And especially those, as we've already talked about, you've said some names, those closest to you, your closest friends are going to ride you the hardest. And most of the time you deserve it. I deserved it. And uh, you just, you're like, okay, this is a way that I can get better, that I have to deal with this until the next guy makes a massive screw up. It, uh, there's such a degree of camaraderie with football officials, uh, that I found and I didn't work any other sports, but I can imagine it's probably similar in, uh, in baseball and in basketball, but you, you get to know, uh, the other officials working these games because you don't work with the same guys all the time. So you've got to the, You've got to learn how to uh, to get along and uh, to mesh as a crew. And uh, I <laughs> I worked college games where you'd go out and there'd be seven of you, and uh, uh, and sometimes the, the referee can uh, can get people so upset before a game. Uh, oftentimes, you want to just say, "I think I'll just pass on this and <laughs> go to the parking lot." <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no doubt. There's been. I remember that in. Uh, working my first few college games it's like you know you're kind of making everybody nervous before we even step set foot on the field can we just hey how's first of all my name's matt by the way like we like we have that conversation first um but i remember my first few varsity games i said i worked with you i worked with i mean every time for me as a young guy it was like this is my first game with paul mines this is my first game with with tracy mcfate this is my first game with uh joe bernanski scott root and 
And so there was a hunger there. I think I was at the very end of kind of when you needed to do a lot of that volunteer work you talked about. And just mm-hmm. one of the first things they told us, hey, you got to go out and watch a game every Friday night. I was like, really? Okay, I'm all about that. And and so unfortunately nowadays, Paul, I know you've been retired for quite some time. I've been out a few years. There's such a shortage of officials that guys are getting thrown into varsity games, not, not just before they're not ready, but before they've even put any any real work in they're just like well we need bodies so we need you out there i think they i think they'd be better off to cut back and go to four-man mechanics <laughs> than to put people out there that are not uh, not really qualified to be there mm. uh, they can they can get you in more trouble than uh, than they're worth it uh i you know it it seems to me like you know there's so much negative stuff that goes on it you know it, it seemed to me like uh, through most of the years that i did it uh the people that went to the games, you know, they, they're going to get on your, on your case. That, that's just part of it. You know, it's a, well, you know what it's like being a, a home plate umpire and you're not having your best game and, uh, and they're just blowing your doors off from behind. And, uh, and so it's the same, same with football. You, uh, I mean, you got to be on your, on your toes all the time. And uh, if you make a mistake, you make a mistake, own up to it. Don't lie about it. I had guys come up, say uh, I had a guy that had an inadvertent whistle and, and it was a referee in a playoff game. And, uh, and we're all stopped and we're looking around and uh, he goes over and he said, what was that? And I said, you blew your whistle. And he said, uh, no, I didn't blow my whistle. And uh, we're all looking at him. We knew it was him. <laughs> and he never, he never admitted that he did it. And it was, it was kind of funny because he, uh, he'd been around about 20 years and it was kind of a, uh, a better than average uh, official, and uh, he never refereed another game. Uh, the the guys that uh, did the assigning and stuff like that, they just cut them off, cut them off at the knees. I was going to tell you, I worked a game uh, up at uh, Claremont College, and uh, the referee was uh, an Orange County guy. And he was kind of a hot shot that was looking to go in the Pac-10 and or the Pac-12 now, but uh, he was. Uh, he comes in and uh, he just started started yipping on people. And I'd worked at him before, with him before, and didn't like him. When I saw his name was on the on the roster, I said, "Well, this isn't going to be fun." And uh, so get there, and during the during the pregame, he started going on. And uh, I I've always had a thing about people calling me Polly. And uh, there there's very few people that I've ever let get away with call, calling me Polly. And uh, so I. He, he started in by calling me Polly, knowing full well, and I'd talked to him before about it. And he was like putting on, uh, you know, his aggressive face. And uh, so I thought, can I talk to you a minute? And uh, he said, about what? I said, I need to talk to you right now. And so we stepped up and walked outside and I said, hey, listen, there's, <laughs> there's probably only three people in my life that I've ever let call me Polly. And they're good friends of mine. That ain't you. If you do it again, I don't care if we're standing in the middle of the field. I'm going to knock you on your ass. <laughs> now, not the best way to start the game, but uh, we we actually got got to be fairly good friends later on. But uh, sometimes you just got to stand up for yourself. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, that's the name of the game, really. And and I may or may not have heard another, we'll say, version of that story, but we'll leave it at that. Polly, yeah, I. I don't like people calling me buddy. I don't know what it is. Buddy, bud, or I'm like, ah, come on. Or you yeah, know. I got a dog named Buddy, pal. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, 
Oh my goodness. So many great stories, uh, great memories, of course, with football and, uh, you know, Tracy and I have been very close over the years. Um, not only was he the assigner, it's, it's nice to make friends with the assigner, but, uh, it was beyond that. I think we met at, uh, uh, Glen Kirk church, just ran into each other when I started football. And I think you were going there a short time too, weren't you? Paul, we, or no? we, we've, uh, we've attended there since, uh, 1992. Wow. Uh, we've been members there for a long, long time. Although I, I have to qualify that we haven't been in that church in two years. All <laughs> I do is, all I do is mail them my, my time. <laughs> we, get, we watch it on television. Because they, they're, they're talking about reopening it up. But if they do, then you still got to sit six feet away from you. Can't sit with your wife and stuff like that. that no, when they open it up where it's regulars, it will go back. Yeah. Oh, man. God bless you. That, that's awesome. Yeah, we, we started going there a while. I haven't been in a long time, but um, I remember I was looking for new churches and we, we went there right in Glendora and I was like, hey, there's Tracy. There's Paul Mize. And uh, yeah, I definitely, definitely like my experiences there. Um, Tracy mentioned to me. Um, you know, his, his brother, um, his um, brother, uh, Tom was uh, a big part of Foothill Citrus. And I, I know you guys, you guys were pretty close and we now have an award in the Foothill Citrus unit that is called the Tom McFade award that's presented to an official every year. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's quite priceless. What can you tell me about your, your relationship with, with Tom McFate and, uh, the McFate family, I guess. Well, I got to know the, the whole family really well, uh, actually. Uh, the old man was, uh, was, was a joy, an absolute joy to, to be around. He could cut right through the chafe and, uh, and, uh, and nail something uh, right on the head. He was just a good guy. But uh, I got to know Tom. I, I worked with him uh, on, a, on a varsity game when we were in four-man mechanics, and I think it was probably my first year or second year working varsity. So I'd been around about five or seven years, but he was just somebody that I saw sitting over on the side uh, that were the instructors and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, so I never talked to him other than uh, working a game. We worked a game at, uh, at La Plenty High School and we go out to do the coin toss and Tom says, do you have a coin? <laughs> I said, uh, no. And he said, I forgot my coin. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what the hell are you going to do? Have them out here and go, <laughs> you know, uh, papers and scissors and rock. And he, <laughs> and he says, no. And believe it or not, he called a, called him out and he said, we're trying something new this year. And so uh, what we're going to do is I want you to pick a, you're the visitor. So I want you to pick a number between one and five. <laughs> Almost fainted. <laughs> and, the guy did. Nobody knew the difference, but he and I. <laughs> and the kids, oh, this is cool. <laughs> and, and I know he, he talked to me after the game. He said, uh, I'd rather you not tell that story to anybody <laughs> at uh, at pizza tonight when we get up there. And I said, oh, you can count on me. Oh, yeah, you can count on me. I wasn't through the door before. You guys aren't going to believe what the hell happened tonight. That sums up the officiating <laughs> brethren so much right there. Oh, yeah, no problem. Oh, your secret's safe with me. Hey, guys, listen. <laughs> well, you know, the, what is it? Football officials are a lot like cops. You know, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll talk about everything. They'll talk about your mama even, uh, you know, and, uh, and they'll do it all in a way that you won't be offended about it, even though you just got shredded. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I'll tell you this, you know, I've, I've officiated a lot of different sports and, and levels and everything, but um, there's something high school football was just the most special time. I, I've been all over the country working college and professional baseball, but high school football Friday nights about five 30 until uh, well, we won't say when uh, <laughs> the nights went late. Sometimes <laughs> those were just the best. They were the fastest 10 or 11 Friday nights of the year. And there was just nothing like it. And, and the relationships, uh, Tom McFate, we mentioned uh, big Joe Bernanski. You talked about Al Corey, who was the instructional chairman many years and the, uh, you know, worked in division one uh, for a long time. If you had to sum up your experiences with Foothill Citrus, Paul, and I wear this shirt proudly with the logo on it. Um, what would you say you remember most from working for the Foothill Citrus Football Officials Association? Probably how, how close they were when it got down to the beginning of the year. Now there was, there was groups of us like Jimmy Axton was, uh, was in this stuff. And there's another guy that went to Glen Kirk. Uh, Jimmy Axton's the guy that got me going back to church. <laughs> I played, I played golf with him and uh, he, he was always, uh, he would always ask me at, uh, at the end of uh, a round of golf, he'd say, uh, you want to meet me for church tomorrow? And he never did not ask. And we played together for probably 15 years. And he'd ask me that every, knowing full well that uh, I was going to say no. And uh, I was going through a really rough, rough time. And uh, he asked me and caught me just perfect. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, give me the address. I'll see you in the morning. And he, he told me later, he said, he almost didn't know how to Give me the, the directions to Glencore. <laughs> I showed up and uh, went, went to church. And the next week, uh, I talked my wife into going. We went up and we stayed there ever since. But to make, to make a point, the, the people would, uh, it wasn't a, a, I mean, a time thing, you know, like, uh, well, football's coming on in September. So let's get together in August and go over the rules. A lot of us did this year round. Going back to Tom McFate, Tom lived this stuff and he had a good job. He worked for, I think, Edison, but he would, it was not uncommon to have the phone ring at 11 o'clock. And I was a homicide detective. And so I was, I was used to my phone ringing at all hours. But I'd pick up the phone thinking it's some watch commander at the uh, station telling me they got a body in the roadway. And uh, it's Tom. It says, Paul, uh, we're talking like February now. Season's been over for two months. And he's calling. I was thinking about this play and he's going over this thing. And I'd be on the phone with him for an hour. I'd call Tracy the next morning. And say, what the hell's going on with Tom? And he said, <laughs> When did he call you? And so I told him, he said, I just spent an hour with him before you did. <laughs> but the guys, the guys that I knew when I started, uh, there was a big bunch of them that were like that. They, uh, they love talking uh, the sport and stuff and our wives knew one another. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd go to, go to dinner now and then. And, uh, well, because somebody better get that phone. Hello, Ray. <laughs> Love the phone. Okay. Anyway, but uh, I think it uh, the guys that uh, that I knew 
were uh, were like my best friends. I was more friends with the guys in football than I was my cop friends. And one thing about cops is they get clannish. I mean, they uh, they only hang around with themselves. And you can get really a jaded view of the world when you start hanging around with a bunch of cops. Now, I had uh, 33 homicide detectives that worked for me. And uh, it was not uncommon to be out, uh, you know, 72 hours straight on, on some case. No sleep, no nothing. And these guys were like your lifeline, your friends. But you, they have some really twisted views over the years about things. And uh, I was determined not to get trapped into that. And I kind of fed on the Foothill Citrus thing. And uh, so when it, even now that, I've, that I'm retired, I still talk now and then to cop friends, but not as much as I do with guys that I did football with or guys that I play golf with. And they're probably not even in law enforcement. So it's just like a family. What, what's interesting is is you explain it like it's almost like guys needed guys needed an outlet kind of to get away from law enforcement yet you went into something that was not as serious but similar to it whereas maybe other guys uh, you know golf wasn't enough or some other hobby wasn't enough but it seemed like football officiating was just right just what you needed to kind of break away coach murphy down at uh, cal state fullerton told me one day he says uh, just before the kickoff, and I come up sideline and I uh, just introduce myself to him. And, and he says, Paul, I heard you were a, an L.A. cop. And I said, uh, it's true. And he looked at me and he said, and you went into football officiating? He said, what, you just don't like being liked? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I grew up on a, on a farm in Colorado. <laughs> really? So. And, uh, I came to California when I was 17. I had just graduated from uh, uh, high school in uh, beautiful downtown Pueblo, Colorado, which is about 100,000 uh, in southern, southern Colorado. What brought and you out to California? My mom and dad. <laughs> ah. I, was, I was 17. And in those, and in those days, uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, you couldn't do anything unless you're 21. Uh, mom and dad still had the hook on you. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't join the military. You couldn't do anything. Uh, I, I really wanted to go to one of the service academies when I was in high school. And uh, that was, that was my, uh, my brass ring. And so I went to work trying to attain that, worked very, very hard at it. And uh, when the or handing out the invitations, I didn't hear my name. <laughs> so my feelings were a little bit dashed. And, uh, but I get a call, uh, well, actually by uh, my English teacher, who was sort of my mentor, she calls me and she says, Paul, I have a, uh, an offer uh, for you to attend the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. And uh which was a place that uh, actually Pete Gotro went for, I think, one year no when kidding. he got out of high school. Yeah. But uh, I, I thought, wow, that's really cool. Yes. And so the guy from, uh, from Coast Guard came, came to the house and uh, made the presentation. He had all these official-like documents for my mom and dad to approve it. And my dad looked at me. And my father was a minister. 
And uh, so he, he looked at me and he said, uh, your mom and I have talked about this. We've prayed about it. And uh, we just don't think this is a good move for you. And so I'm not going to sign for you. I was crushed. And, uh, and then he tells me, he said, one day you'll thank me for it. And uh, <laughs> I've told, this is the tag to the story. My father died when he was 87. I do not recall me ever thanking him. <laughs> my dad my, my dad my dad came out here and took a church and so we came uh we kept uh following along after him and uh we uh i had to get i had to uh get set up to go to school and, and my dad even thought this would really be a good deal so he took me up to Pasadena Nazarene College and uh, where my dad uh, did his undergrad and he said I'm gonna take you up here and show you around and everything we'll get you signed in and uh, he because my my brother went in the Marine Corps and so my dad was making gonna make damn sure that I followed in his footsteps he had followed in his grandfather's footsteps and his grandfather followed in his father's footsteps and Paul Myers was surely going to be the next uh, minister in the family and I remember telling my mom, <laughs> this is not me. There is nobody sitting on my shoulder calling me to be a minister. And uh, it, it was it was a tough time for my dad. <laughs> but I got, I always wanted to be an L.A. cop. And I got into that. Uh, it, it, it sounds ringy, but I was... Uh, we, didn't, we only had one television channel in my town when I grew up, and we would get Dragnet. And uh, so I, I watched that, and I was thoroughly enthralled with it. Okay. Uh, loved it. And so uh, I, got, uh, I got into that. My wife and I got married. I was 20. And uh, so I had, I had to find something to do. I was a machinist. So I'm going to school at night, machinist in the daytime, and... Uh, saw the thing where LAPD was hiring. And uh, so I had, uh, I went down and uh, took the tests and everything. And uh, I was stunned when they hired me. I was really was, I was 21, 21 <laughs> years old, never been in the military. And I go, I go, uh, go down to the police academy the first day. And uh, there was me and another guy that were, were uh, 20, we were 21. Everybody else was like 25, 26. And had been in uh, been in the military. Some of them had been in Vietnam, and uh, so I was like a like a I don't know a, a bubble just waiting to pop. And uh, it was difficult for me to to get through the academy. I, I did okay in the books and the and the physical part of it, but uh, we talked about this before about your uh, your mannerisms and your presence. I did not have the presence of a cop. Wow. And uh, I would uh, very baby faced. Oh, my God. I see uh, pictures of me when I when I graduated from the academy. I looked like I was 12. And uh, it was it was a tough time, but uh, it was what I wanted to do. And then, like I said once before, as I went through it, I just uh, I couldn't believe they paid me for it. And they didn't pay me much. I'll tell you that. I, paid, I was thinking about this with uh, thinking about this coming up. I made five hundred and seventy-five dollars a month, and uh, it, it 
what's that what's that work out to about seven thousand dollars a year yeah, something, something like that. that. That's what I. That's what I made. Mean. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> My wife had to work. Yeah, <laughs> I'm chasing the dream. I love the dream, but uh, yeah, yeah. sorry, honey. I'm starving to still... death, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it is interesting that it didn't sound like uh, I don't know. In some, I've heard from a few different officers these days that I don't know standards has been have been lowered a little bit, but but you, it sounds like you had to step your game up to achieve what you wanted to do. No one was going to hold your hand and be like, Oh, we're sorry. Uh, you're having a tough time. So did it, oh, yeah. it kind of, you were 21 at the time, but did it grow you up pretty fast? Oh yeah. I, uh, when I went, uh, when I went through the first, first day that we were all lined up on the, uh, at the police Academy downtown, the, uh, the, you know, they gave us the, the, you know, the regular spiel and everything, but we weren't sworn in yet. And so they took us all upstairs and there was a, a big uh, uh, PT instructor up there by the name of Bob Smithson. And he, when he walked in the room, it seemed like all the light left the room because he was huge. He walks, he walks in and he says, I got some photographs I need to need you guys to, to view and pass around. And, uh, and then as you see him, I want you to leave the room and go outside and contemplate what you've just viewed. And then we'll come back in and uh, we'll do the swearing in ceremony. And uh, so when the pictures come around, they're, they're eight by 10 blowups of uh, three dead police officers. And, uh, you know, and here you're, here you're looking at uh, guys that were killed in the line of duty. Uh, one of them was the onion field uh, thing. And uh, the other one was uh, two detectives from Wilshire Station that uh, tried to arrest a forgery suspect in Sears. And uh, he killed them both. So here, here you're looking at three dead police officers in there, uh, one in his uniform and the other two in suits and ties and you see bullet holes in their faces and things. And you know, I mean, it, I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, uh, I'd seen dead animals on the farm and stuff like that, nothing like this. And uh, so when they got done, there was 84 of us that first day. And when we went to swear in, there was 77. The other guys left. And said, "Not nah, can't can't do that." And uh, I remember, I, I remember thinking about it later. I said, "Well, I had quit my job, come down. I had, I had a a uh, uh, a young son that had been just been born, and uh, I said I needed the job. I, there was no way I was going away, and so I stayed in there. And uh, and I I found a niche and a groove in it. And a couple of the instructors." They didn't make it easy for me, but they they seemed to be there to try to mentor me through. And that uh, uh, I'd never fired a handgun, never fired a handgun, and uh, I had trouble with that. And uh, eventually, you had to be able to shoot at least sharpshooter uh, to get out of it to graduate. And uh, I about two weeks before we graduated, uh, I finally shot it. And then a tag story to this is. My wife was a deputy sheriff and she was an expert with a gun. <laughs> so, if, I, if we ever have trouble around the house, I give her the gun, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Now, did she get into law enforcement before you or at the same time or how did that work? No, uh, I think Reba went into the uh, Sheriff's Academy uh, at about, I think she was like 27. 
uh, 27 years old. Uh, very proud of her. She had a great career. She was a detective at City of Industry Station. Uh, one of the first women uh, in the history of law enforcement to be given a Medal of Valor. Wow. And they don't, give those, they don't give those away with, uh, with Cracker Jacks. No. So, that's a, uh, wow. so the whole family's proud of her. She's a good, she was a good cop and a very good lady. The nice thing about it is she had a heart. As a women, a lot of women that go in, uh, into law enforcement are very hard people. But Reba never lost her humanity. And, uh, you know, and I guess that's why we've been married almost 61 years now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, God bless you both. Um, can you can you add on to that right there, what you just kind of mentioned, Paul, about, you know, I, I've been friends with a lot of police officers, young and old. And um, th- my my grandfather was a police officer. And, and my dad always told me and, and other people, you know, there is, a, you use the word hardened and does, I mean, the job itself to, to have kind of that pressure and kind of that head on, I don't know, head on a swivel, just that alerted alertness all the time. What is it so much that weighs on, on cops, uh, police officers, law enforcement? What is it that kind of makes them, I don't know, different, different people you're, and just, you know, the, the, the effects very- of. You're always one of the first things that I learned uh, was to be very aware of my presence where I was, and uh, and worst thing you can have happen is to, to get out. There's a famous case down in uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, two officers uh, saw a guy walking in a. Uh, they were up in uh, Baldwin Hills, and uh, beautiful homes up in there, and uh, so they saw this guy walking in the middle of the night. So they stopped their car and get out to find out if he lived in the area just to talk to him. And uh, as they approached him, the guy pulls out a gun and shoots them both. And uh, he seriously wounded uh, uh, Martinez while Skebby gets back to his car and the guy run, runs away. Uh, he got shot up and wound up. They found him down the street dead. But uh, Skebby's in the front seat of the car. He puts out a call for help. And they asked him where he was, and he didn't know. And uh, they were not in their normal patrol district. And so cars are running all around trying to find him and everything. He bled to death in the front seat of his car. And so to this day, to this day, I find myself making sure I know where I am. And the other thing, my wife, my wife will the first one to tell you this, I still never sit with my back to the door. I don't care. Yeah. I don't carry a gun. I've never carried a gun since I retired. And, uh, but I will not <laughs> sit with my back to the door and have somebody coming in behind me. Yeah. That seems to be a, a constant uh, thing with, with guys. Uh, and and it, it's a, it's a great, even if you're not in law enforcement, it, those are, those are great ideas for all of us. Like, Hey, what are these street names? Okay. Just in case, you know, I don't know. We were so glued to our phones and GPS now that we do lose track of our surroundings. Uh, you need to you need to know you need to know where you are, what your surroundings are, and uh, there are some places that you go into. I remember my wife and I were in our motorhome years ago, and we drove into Washington D.C. And I told my wife, I said, "I'm getting a little low on gas. I can look for a gas station and fill up." And this is before we were going to find a campground to, to stay. And I uh, pulled into this gas station, and I get the uh, hose out, and I got it in. This guy comes out and he's a black guy. He comes up to me and he says, where are you from? I said, California, why? 
And he said, do you know where you are? I said, uh, Washington, D.C. And he said, well, you're in the wrong part of Washington, D.C. for your face. And he said, I suggest that uh, you turn that thing off and get out of here. Whoa. Okay. And, uh, you know, that uh, that'll get your get your blood going. And uh, it's 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 hard for me to understand that there are places that just because of what you look like, you cannot go into. And uh, I had all the years that I that I worked downtown, I I spent a lot of time. I was the uh, I ran the homicide unit at 77th Street Station and uh, we would do somewhere between 120 and 160 murders every year. And uh, so I was always very comfortable with two things. I could walk past any dog. I never get bit by a by a cur dog. Walk past them. I, the dogs knew I weren't afraid. I wasn't afraid of them, and there was no need for them to be afraid of me. And uh, I never, never felt that I needed to be fearful of walking in the black community. Uh, most most of them, you know, it, as we're younger, we get bumps on our head by being stupid. And, uh, you know, what is it? My dad told me, he said, stupid should bring pain. <laughs> so when you're stupid, you should get pain. And uh, so a, lot, a lot of stuff that cops get into and stuff is, is uh, their own creation. Uh, I did it and, and, and I saw it done by a lot of guys go down and pop off at the wrong guy. And uh, not everybody's afraid of cops and not everybody likes cops. But we all need us. We all need cops. One hundred percent. And uh, you know, you you were not in. Uh, you know, you you were not in some. I don't know, Beverly Hills area. You were in a. You were in L.A. L.A. And there's uh, plenty of crime, plenty of murders, as you mentioned. Unfortunately, um, what was it that to kind of piggyback off what you said? What was it that kind of uh, brought you to where you were in, in the sense of you know, you knew you could be, be around anybody, talk to anybody. Uh, you made mistakes, of course, but was it just experience or is it just kind of taking everything you had, you had learned over the years into practice? It was all of the above. I mean, I think a lot of it is, is as you mature, you, uh, you learn uh, how to talk to people and there's posturing that you make. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that, uh, when I saw three or four, uh, gang member standing on a street corner that it didn't get my uh, hackles up a little bit but uh, I mean you're of course you're wary of them but I never wanted them to you know what's the old movie thing I never wanted them to see me sweat you know it's a not it was not out of my out of character for me to walk up and ro- walk right between them I never would walk around them and uh, over the years I got to be pretty well known in uh, in South Los Angeles and the homicide unit that I worked in, we handled all the murders from the Santa Monica freeway all the way south to the, the uh, port of Los Angeles. Wow. So it encompassed about uh, just short of a million people. And uh, we would do 460 murders uh, down there. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of carnage. And those are just the ones that died, not the other ones that got all shot up. So it was right in the, when the rock cocaine and all that stuff took off. And, and uh, so you had different gangs vying for the power of, of it. It was, 
it was really a, uh, a tough time. I got a phone call the other day from a young lady that that is working uh, the the uh, homicide division that uh, that I retired from. It's called South Bureau Homicide Division, and uh, when I was there, we had uh, eighty eight detectives. And uh, she said, uh, "Well, yeah, we're down here, and uh, we have uh, forty six of us." And I said, "God, how many murders are you doing?" She said, "Well." Last year, we did 54 in this particular unit that she was in. And uh, I said, how many did the whole division handle? She said, 270. And it's, boy, it's really quieted down a lot, which is good. <laughs> wow. We were going, we were going huckledy buck all the time. It's not uncommon to have, uh, I did a weekend uh, one time and I was the, uh, I was still working cases. And uh, we handled, I handled uh, eight separate murder cases that weekend. It was like I'd go from one to the next and then tell us that keep laying flares down. I'll be there as soon as I can. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was nuts. It was nuts. Paul, how did you get, well, I mean, I, I guess I know how you get involved in homicide, but what made you um, number one, pursue being a detective and then wind up in, in homicide? I think you said 28 years of, of being a, a homicide detective. How did all that come about? And how did you know that that's what you wanted to be in, involved in because it's like you said it's not a it's kind of a gruesome uh, area it uh, you know I, I uh, like like everybody else when you when you go into a detective uh, bureau a division you go in and they they give you a, they give you an assignment and uh, I worked uh, uh, you know, crimes against persons so I was handling you know assaults and batteries and you know domestic violence and stuff like that and it was really boring to me uh, to do. Man, uh, so I catch myself going over into the homicide squad room and sit sit down and, and chit chat with these guys and look at the books and stuff. And basically, I, I was trying to kiss up to somebody when they had a vacancy that uh, they would hire me in. And uh, my my problem was my rank. Uh, I was what they called a dual right sergeant. I could. I got pissed off. I got the detective bureau pissed off at me. They could put me back in my uniform, and uh, but the other, uh, but I could also work in detectives. And so I uh, trying to trying to be as easy going as I could. Well, we had a whole bunch of murders uh, one weekend, and they called and wanted to know if I would come in and partner up with somebody. And I said sure. I went in and and I started uh, working the case and. Uh, learned how to do the crime scene itself. It's, it's really quite a process. And uh, I was just thoroughly taken over by it. I, I did it so, so much and enjoyed it so much. I wrote manuals for how to do it uh, for, uh, for the department. And uh, all, of the, all of the different homicide units within the city, and at the time there was like 18 of them, they, uh, they all wound up having to use that manual and how to do it. Uh, to the point that uh, I was loaned uh, several occasions to the United States State Department. And uh, they sent me to places like uh, Belgium, uh, beautiful downtown Rwanda in Africa, uh, Bulgaria, Switzerland, and stuff like this. And I'd go uh, do seminars on how to conduct a crime scene investigation. And uh, so at the time uh, that I retired, most of the books and stuff that dealt with 
with, uh, with crime scene investigations and it's kind of how-to stuff uh, with stuff based on, uh, on my manuals that I had written. So I was, I was pretty proud of that stuff. I still got some of that stuff, even believe it or not. My, and then my, my youngest son went off in, uh, into law enforcement. He unfortunately couldn't get hired on LAPD. He was, uh, had blonde hair and blue eyes and <laughs> trying to get on down there was not gonna work. And so he, uh, he wound up uh, going to work in Westminster. And uh, after he made Sergeant and stuff, and he called me one day, uh, and uh, this was during the Rodney King riot thing. He calls me and he says, guess, guess who just got assigned to homicide? I said, what do you guys have, one a year? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he kind of chuckled. He said, we've already had 13. <laughs> Whoa. So uh, they had the Vietnamese gangs down there. So oh, it, wow. it was kind of fun because he would, he would call me and ask me, how do you do this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a question about that. Like, how do you do that? How do you, for so many years, get up and go to work every day knowing that you're going to probably see pictures of bodies. You're going to probably see bodies in person. You're going to have to try to put the pieces together, put the pieces of the puzzle to figure out what happened. I mean, to do something that long, do you ever get used to it? Or is it something that just you carry with you and you, you find ways to, to, to deal with it? I'll tell you the way it was put to me. I, I, worked, with, I worked with an old timer uh, that had worked murders for 25, 30 years when, uh, when I started working with him. And uh, Jack told me, he said, when the uh, first time I had to go to an autopsy, and if you handle a murder, you have to attend his autopsy. And the reason uh, to do so is because if they recover a slug or a broken off uh, knife blade or something inside the body, it's given to you because uh, you have to keep a, uh, a log on the evidence. Who recovered it? Who's got it now? So everybody knows where this thing is, so the chain of custody. And uh, so we walked into the end of the coroner's office uh, and, uh, and you can smell it right away. And he goes, oh, this is not good. And uh, he's, he told me, he said, one thing to remember and do not forget this, never, ever, ever look at a dead body as though it's a human being. And I said, how do you not look at it? He said, yeah. it's evidence, it's evidence. Remember oh. that if you start thinking about this is a human being and you're going to go in here in a minute and they're going to take the, the uh, skull cap off of this guy's head and remove his brain in front of you, or they're going to remove his lungs and liver and all this stuff out of his body cavity. And you're going to be standing here watching him do that. Uh, it won't take long before uh, you're going to have hobgoblins jumping around in your head. You can't do it. So I use the same philosophy uh, to other young people that came in and worked for me and, it's evidence. Don't look at it like a body. And uh, mm. so I probably attended uh, close to 5,000 autopsies in my lifetime. And uh, some of them uh, are tough to deal with in kids. Uh, women that have been uh, raped and mutilated, uh, those used to just drive me nuts. Uh, I, did, <laughs> I just did a thing on uh, a serial murderer that... Uh, that worked down in LA. Uh, God, I can't think of his name right now. God, it's awful getting old. But uh, one of the uh, television channels uh, that uh, called me and said they, they're doing something on the, uh, oh, they call this guy was the Grim Sleeper, was, was the guy. And it turned out that 
that uh, we're looking for this guy. He was strangling prostitutes and leaving them uh, in alleys covered up with, you know, with trash and stuff. And uh, nobody would even know they were missing until they started to smell from decay. And uh, so we're, uh, this goes on for like 10, 12 years. We're picking up these bodies. And uh, finally, the, uh, the, uh, the cases were, we didn't solve one of them, but I was on all of them, but two. And when they, uh, when they called and asked me about it, I said, did you hear about the guy? I knew the guy who had been discovered. And it turned out he was a garage attendant at the 77th Street Police Station. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, I don't know what he got out of that, but uh, he just had this thing about, uh, about prostitutes. Now he'd go and, uh, you know, and get laid and uh, do all that stuff, but then he'd strangle them. And uh, so they got this guy, they asked me to come down and talk about it. I said, I don't know what I would talk about, what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down and tell you that I, uh, I went down and, and picked up a decomp body. And uh, so I went down and I uh, did a, about a three hour interview with him. And I saw it on television the other night. And uh, <laughs> the, the guy, the, get the guy arrested. He goes to uh, the court, gets convicted of uh, like 11 counts of murder. They give him the death penalty. He dies in his cell three months after, or nine months after he goes to San Quentin. Wow. So go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Go figure. Uh, indeed. Uh, who knows? These days he might've been, uh, he might've been let out, you know, just uh, made mail probably <laughs> for, for, you know, we have too many criminals in prison or something. Uh, anyway. Uh, well, let, let me, uh, you mentioned kind of a, Famous case there, Paul. L.A. is has no shortage of, of murders and you know uh, I don't know not celebrities, but just uh, there, there's a lot of famous uh, cases. We'll say in, uh, in throughout Los Angeles. Uh, have there been any you've been a part of that that you can talk about or, or anything that that might be? I can, a, I can a, talk a about most cases that I was involved in, and I'll say this. I was never the primary in, in any of the uh, the big big time cases. Uh, I was uh, for about six hours. I was listed. Uh, my partner and I were listed as the primaries on Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> we wow. we happened to be we happened to be driving down Wilshire Boulevard uh, when that whole thing went down, and uh, so they were looking for any detectives in the vicinity to do so, and so. We uh, hopped our car, hopped out and uh, ran in. And uh, in fact, uh, Kennedy was still alive, uh, was still talking when, uh, when, we, when we got in there and they were trying to administer to him and, and uh, stuff. And uh, Sirhan, Sirhan was, was uh, thoroughly getting his ass whipped. Uh, but uh, that was taken over by uh, the detectives from Robbery Homicide downtown. But uh, I worked on the Hillside Strangler uh, case. Uh, I, one of the things that I always, always was known for was, was organizational skills. Now that can be a, a, uh, a real crippler to somebody trying to, trying to promote or do something because they don't want to let you go. They want to assign you to a task force. And then, uh, like in, in my case, they would, uh, assign me to, uh, catalog clues, you know, so you'd get the phone calls coming in about, uh, well, hey, I know about this guy and this guy. And so I had to sign a number to it, get the uh, the clue out to some detective, and then uh, make sure that I got it back and then kept a log on everything. So I did that on uh, the Hillside Strangler, uh, 
the uh, who the hell is that idiot Mexican guy? I, I probably did uh, three or four of those things. And there was there was one there was one that was really kind of weird to me is that uh, I got a call and I was on probation I think and on the job and uh, we got a call to uh, go to the downtown library and uh, so we go over there and they take us around and show us there's a a, a, a guy laying in against the wall by the library and he had just been gutted I mean uh, somebody had got a knife into his belly and just split him open. And uh, so about two weeks later, we get another one down on Skid Row, same thing. And uh, so I kept wondering uh, in my mind, what, what happened to that case? What happened to that case? Nothing, nothing happened to it. And uh, maybe 10, 12 years later, boom, we get one. And uh, I'm working murders now and here, I'm like, what the hell? This looks like two cases I was involved in in 1964. And uh, sure enough, it turned out to be this guy had the reason there hadn't been any more gone. He got arrested and went to prison. And now he'd gotten out and started over again. And uh, his name was uh, Lonnie Franklin. I think that was it. And uh, we arrested him in, uh, in Hollywood, up in Hollywood. But he'd, by then, he'd already done seven. That kind of wow. stuff. So Jeez. guys, uh, people that kill people are different people. Different. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way. I mean, you think of, you know, they're monsters and all that, but yeah, they're just, oh, oh, it's, uh, it's crazy to I'll, think about it. And, I'll give oh, you one thing, one thing that, 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 that would just drive me crazy. You go out and you have a, uh, a murder occur. Everybody knows who did it, but the community doesn't want to tell you. The family of the victim won't tell you. And the reason they didn't want anybody to think they were a snitch. Oh man! Now as, as, wrap your head around that one. We had a guy, a body, turn up one uh, one morning, uh, and said, "Paul, you got to come out and look at this." And so I drive in, go out, and here's a guy hanging in a tree, and he's got a, a regular old western noose around his neck, and here he is hanging in a tree. I said, "What the hell happened?" And uh, found out that uh, it took a couple of days to get this all sorted out. This guy was a terror in the neighborhood. And uh, he'd go to the door and he'd say, I need $500 or something's going to happen to your house tonight. You know, of course, they would get off the yard. And so he'd go and set fire to the front porch of their house. And so this got around the neighborhood, but nobody wanted to turn him in because they knew the guy was certifiably nuts. And uh, so... The neighbors all got together one night and said, we've had enough of this. And apparently they went out and snatched this guy and hung him. And uh, I remember my captain asked me about it. I said, what are you doing on this, on the, the guy that was hanging in the tree? I said, we cut him down. And he said, no, I mean, are we going to solve this thing or not? I said, oh, it's solved. Uh, and he said, is somebody going to go to jail? And he uh, said, uh, no, uh, nobody's ever going to go to jail in that case on my watch. I'm not going to do it. And I, wow. a couple of years later, after he had retired, I explained it to him. <laughs> oh, man, that that's that's old school vengeance, I guess. You know, back the in the wild hung. west, the neighbors <laughs> hung them. <laughs> that is crazy. Oh my goodness. Uh, you mentioned a lot of the uh, there were some famous cases there here in in, in L.A. Uh, I didn't realize you were at the you know 
one among the first on scene for the RFK uh, assassination. That's crazy. Uh, I, I got to ask Hollywood and LA, there's always TV shows and movies that portray police and detectives. You, you said you loved Dragnet as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, now as a veteran re- officer, detective, retired, uh, are there shows and movies that you just roll your eyes over? Like that's not even close. And, are there, and also are there shows and movies that you're like, wow, that's pretty close. There's uh, two close, two two of them that uh, there's two shows, uh, and I don't know whether you've ever read the books and stuff. Uh, I think Connolly is the guy that writes the the Bosch books. Yes, it, yes. Uh, when I started watching uh, the uh, the the movies that they made, and uh, I mean they they had literally taken the Hollywood detective squad room and duplicated it in that it's exact if you walk in there it's exactly that way the procedures that he used were exactly that the what happens uh they give him a lot of latitude with some of the individual stuff he does because they if you try to play uh cowboy stuff uh and you're working a homicide unit or a robbery unit uh they'll cut your legs off uh, no this is a partnership this is we do that we do stuff together we don't uh, send somebody out to, to go and arrest somebody or follow somebody by themselves. That don't happen. But uh, I get a bang out of watching Blue Bloods. Okay. Uh, I, I laugh my butt off. I told him, I said, that, that guy that plays the, plays the detective, he'd be dragged out behind a squad, behind a, a detective uh, division and have his ass kicked. <laughs> the stuff that he pulls off. <laughs> but yeah, I, I get a bang out of some of it, but most of it is is uh is just pure hollywood yeah for sure my my good buddy bill barnes who was a homicide detective, i think for riverside or was for riverside pd he's he he loved and raved about that show he's like man this is exactly how it is and uh he said how great it was i've heard multiple cops talk about bosch and yeah i, I love that show for sure uh, uh you know the, the guy the guy Connolly uh, practically lives at hollywood station yeah yeah i, I heard mean, that he walks in and out of there and i mean they treat him like he's god and uh, and he's made them very famous also. So it's oh, yeah. two-way street. Oh, definitely. And and you touched on it earlier, Paul, just kind of like your relations with c- community and maybe, uh, you know, gang members, criminals, just uh, civilians, whatever, uh, that it was that it was pretty good. And there was, you know, uh, other cops as well. What, what have you made? You've been out, you've retired a while, but what have you made over the past few years and kind of the the relationship with, with police, uh, specifically here in Southern California, but everywhere around the country. Um, as you mentioned earlier, we, we need cops, we need police. Um, this idea to me of defunding the police, and that is just nonsense, it's a catchphrase. Uh, but what would you make of kind of the, the relationship with the society and police the past couple of years? In a lot, in, in my uh, time uh, in law enforcement, I always, seemed to me like we were our own worst enemies in a lot of cases. We do some pretty stupid things. And, uh, and, I, and I'll say this uh, to preface what I'm going to follow up to is I don't know that anyone that I've ever known ever did anything with a malicious intent. I mean, that uh, they, were, they were going out to maliciously hurt someone or uh, to shoot people. But I, we have a, there's a, a, uh, a room up at the police academy. And, uh, and I don't know what the acronym stands for, but they call it the FATS, F-A-T-S simulator. 
and uh, what it is is a uh, you can walk in there and they have they'll give you a gun and uh, and then right behind you all of a sudden you realize you're in the middle of a uh, it's like a, a three-dimensional quality to it and uh, you're standing in there and here come people come running in and it's a robbery and you're in the middle of it now what are you going to do mm. and uh they brought uh da's public defenders judges and all kinds of people up to give them an idea what it was like to be in these situations and uh the uh almost uh, exclusively these guys blew the hell out of everybody and uh and their contention was well we're not we're not trained uh, police officers and so they they kind of discounted uh, you know the uh, the whole idea of them being there, but uh, and t things happen so fast. There's a a, a policewoman in uh, in uh, Hollywood division that's just being roasted now. I mean, there's things on the internet on her. I've seen them half a dozen times where they show her. She's got a gun on a on a guy's a Hispanic guy, and he's got a uh, a big knife i mean a big one like a something you'd cut bread with or something and uh he's standing in the middle of, he, he gets out of a car that he they chased him for a while he wrecks the car gets out of the car and now he's got this big butcher knife and he's advancing towards her and uh, she gets out of the car and she's got her little camera on so you can hear her talk to him and see him walking and you can clearly see the knife but he's she's or he's about maybe 30, 40 feet away from her, advancing at a steady pace. And next thing, as she's telling him, drop that knife, drop that knife. And he doesn't do it. And here he comes, but he's got a purpose on his face. And so she capped him and killed him. And uh, of course, uh, the shit hit the fan over the, over the deal that, uh, you know, he was no danger to her. Well, I have a series of photographs that I used uh, when I, taught at the police academy that uh, is of an officer who waited one step too long and uh, he has got cuts that go all the way to the bone all over his back and his chest and his abdomen and everything and uh, surprisingly he lived through this thing but uh, I, th I think the number was something like 200 and some odd stitches put in him uh, to put him back together and uh, he just waited one step too long. People move really quick. And uh, the average law enforcement shooting uh, when I was on the job was within about seven yards. That's, that's pretty close. And uh, I don't, uh, the guys now, I could not be a cop today. The way I was trained and, uh, and developed, uh, emotionally and uh, into my adulthood uh, as a police officer, I couldn't, I couldn't take the grief that they're taking now. I, I couldn't do it. I, I'd have to leave the job or I'd wind up being in jail. Mm -hmm. they, they put so much onto them. What, what's the deal now? They want them to have, uh, what's the, they want to hire people like psychologists to come out and, and help them deal with, uh, with people. We had psychologists before. They'd ride around with a sergeant, and if they had some domestic violence thing, come out there and they'd they'd bring the this 
lady or, uh, or man uh, over onto the call and chances are it was gonna wind up into a brawl anyway. I don't, I don't know that they ever helped. And after a couple of years, they, the city uh, defunded it. But these guys have a, a exceedingly difficult job. Yeah. And in fact, in the Times, a couple of days ago, there was an article in there that they'd announced uh, in October that they were going to have an academy class in January. And uh, they couldn't hire enough people to even uh, have a class. And... Uh, <laughs> You gotta be you careful what we, what we wish for. Yeah, I mean, we we need we need police, everybody. We need it. Uh, you may be mad at them writing you a ticket or something, but we need the police. We've needed them a long time, and uh, there's not really any better option. Social workers showing up to uh, you know domestic violence dispute probably aren't gonna do too much. They're gonna <laughs> want to talk talk their little game thing, and uh, whoever the party uh, that feels they've been aggrieved. Uh, they don't want to hear that stuff. Uh, they want they want uh, something uh, done for them. Yeah. Well, Paul, much like uh, I asked about football officiating, um, I, I want to ask you about your career in law enforcement. You, you've seen a lot, experienced a lot, um, uh, a lot of bad days, but a, a lot of good days, I'm sure, too. Uh, solving cases had to be um, a, a nice feeling at times. Uh, how would you sum up your, your entire career in law enforcement and looking back? Probably the best uh, 35 years of my life. Uh, I, I always felt that I gave it 110%. Uh, I, my wife will tell you, I would, I, would, uh, I would write my search warrants and stuff on my cases at home on the kitchen table because uh, I didn't want it to to affect my work time at work, you know, and, uh, you know, and that kind of stuff. So I'm doing my paperwork and stuff at home. Uh, one time uh, when I was going to going, uh, working on my master's degree, I would sit in the family room and we got a, a little table and put in there and had my a word processor and stuff. And I would do my schoolwork and my cop work there at uh, home. I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, there were of course, bad days and bad weeks, but uh, the the memories that I took away from it and the the camaraderie ship that uh, that went with it, uh, I'll never I'll never forget it, never. Well, well, God bless you, sir, for your service and your wife's service. I mean, uh, two two people with so much experience in the field uh, under under one roof. And I have one final question for you, Paul, before I let you go. Uh, now that we've talked a lot about a lot of serious stuff here, this is your, this is your, the, the last one I'll ask you is after retiring now for quite some time, has the golf game improved at all with you? Are you playing a lot more? How's the golf game? When, uh, three years, three years ago, I was a seven handicap. I'm an 18 now. So you figure it out. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was fine at, uh, you know, not to throw a big downer on this thing, but because this happens to a lot of guys. I, uh, I come down with prostate cancer. And oh. so, uh, you know, next thing you know, you're, uh, you're uh, being set up for surgery and uh, they're taking uh, some of the better parts of your life away from you. And uh, the, when they start cutting into your abdomen and stuff, it does, does things to you physically where uh, there's no pop in my golf swing anymore. Uh, and so uh, 
I still have fun when I go out and play. I, I play with the same guys and, uh, that I've played with for years, uh, Joe and, uh, Joe's down. He can't, he can't even swing a club. Now he's got a rotator cuff thing. They're talking about doing surgery on him now, but I know Joe, uh, Joe will find some way to get out of that surgery. <laughs> I've, I've never known a man in my life that is six foot seven and 350 pounds scared to death of a scalpel. <laughs> big joe big joe he, he comes over pleasure. he came over to our house one day and uh because i had told him my wife had had bunion surgery on her feet and uh and he said oh i need to talk to reba so he comes swinging by and he's talking to her about the, uh, about her surgery and uh she's telling him and, and says and they made an incision here I had to get him a chair. He was getting lightheaded. <laughs> <laughs> Big Joe, Mr. Football player, baseball player. What's up, man? Come on. Yeah. Freaking <laughs> Joe. Well, 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 Paul, I can't wait for uh, so many of the Foothill Citrus guys, Tracy, Joe, and uh, all, all the guys to, to see this. And uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for doing this. We've talked about it a while. This has been so much fun. And, and, and honestly, uh, informative and uh, I, I've learned a lot and it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. Well, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, keep in touch, pal. You're, you're close enough now. You're I know right up the road. Yeah. I know we're, we're beyond the, uh, the Facebook <laughs> likes and uh, shares and everything. And I was like, you know what? I got to get Paul on. We seem pretty like-minded here. So yeah, right up the road. All right, pal. You thanks a lot. Thank you, Paul. Bye now. Bye-bye. Well, I'll say it again after another outstanding, fun interview. That was just so much fun and, and probably my most, probably the most, my, my favorite one I've done here in uh, the past few months. I mean, every time I get a chance to talk to somebody, uh, especially the, the, the caliber of person that Paul Mize is, I mean, it's just, I don't know what to say sometimes after that. I thought we'd talk a little football officiating, which was great, but then to dive into the law enforcement side of things and to hear what guys like him went through. Uh, for so long, uh, the things they've seen and just their their commitment to solving crimes and solving cases. I mean, it really does paint a picture for for those of us uh, not involved in law enforcement that we should be eternally grateful for these guys, these men and women who, who put on the blue uniform. I mean, he mentioned his wife there with the one of the first to, females to receive the, the Medal of Valor. I mean, what an incredible, uh, incredible, incredible group of people. And uh, to Paul Mize, thank you for your service and to your wife, uh, Reba. And, and thank you, Paul, for your influence in Foothill Citrus uh, football officiating. Um, I, I didn't get to experience it long, but um, it, it's funny. You just you, you catch up, you, you, you go right where you left off, really. And I know so many Foothill Citrus uh, football officials uh, cherish uh, the memories from Paul and, and the moments and great times. So thank you very much, Mr. Paul Mize. That was outstanding. Uh, thank you for sharing so much with us. And yes, I do live right up the road from you now and uh, wouldn't mind seeing you in person very, very soon. Guys, that will wrap up today's show with the Get Home Safe podcast. I will repeat a few things as I usually do at the end of the show. But if you'd like to follow this podcast, you can follow us pretty much anywhere. You find podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, you should be able to find Get Home Safe podcast. We're on YouTube as well under Get Home Safe podcast. Our Facebook and Instagram page, same thing, Get Home Safe Podcast, and our Twitter handle, Get Home Safe Pod. Um, those are where you can find us. Give us a follow, uh, rate, review on the uh, platforms. 
and you should be able to find uh, new episodes popping up here and there. You can watch the uh, podcast here on YouTube or listen to them just with audio. And uh, you look, usually on Thursdays, I'll put out a picture of our upcoming guests and some information. So that's a good reason to follow us through social media and everything. Uh, this podcast will be back on Tuesday, Tuesdays and Fridays is our current format. Just me on Tuesdays, rambling away about sports, current events, my opinions, uh, just the crazy world that is. And then Fridays, much like today, we'll have a guest on just a face-to-face conversation, uh, just talking about their career, um, their story, and hopefully uh, a few things that can inspire all, and all of us to take us into the weekend, uh, ready, ready to conquer the world. So big thanks again, Paul Mize. Can't say it enough. I will uh, see you very soon. And to everyone else, everyone else out there, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, much love for all of the support. Can't do this without you guys. Uh, and I just, yeah, I, I'm incredibly blessed to do podcasts like this uh, weekly. And, and I just can't wait to do some more next week. Guys, have a great weekend. And as always, guys, no matter what you're doing, whether you're out on the town or around in third base, get home safe. <laughs>